Sing, goddess, the, the anger of when Peleus, God son of Achilles. Tell me the about a complicated to me equal to the gods that man. On a hang, thousand bucklers. Man is Agamemnon. My husband shall be the ground where justice is delivered. Gentlemen, I'm my worst. Which nothing ever can destroy. Will be to govern the peoples of the world in your empire. Hello, everyone. Hello. Thank you for responding. I'm Gabrielle. Welcome to this week's episode of The Good Fight Pod. I'm here with... Not me. I'm not here. But I'm Timothy. And I might be here. Tim is like Schrodinger's cat. Um, <laughs> I'm Ardashir, and I'm not like Schrodinger's cat. And I am here sitting directly across from Gabrielle. I'm Grace Alita. I'm next in the circle. <laughs> so interesting. <laughs> Hi, I'm Chase. I um, am here again, never with my own headphones, always at someone else's, but I am here. Welcome, welcome. We accept you even if those headphones are... I can still recognize you even if they're not your headphones. Says the woman who is also not wearing her own headphones. So this claim is a little little, uh, unsturdy in its foundation. Well, technically, my headphones still belong to someone in the circle, so it's it's not too... Oh, it's a little different. I see, I see. Okay. Well, this week, we'll be discussing one of my personal favorites, uh, which is, of course, Cervantes' Don Quixote, a great book, really long. We don't read all of it, which I think is absolutely ridiculous. We should read it all, thousand pages, you know, front to back, but... Does anyone want to start us off by saying, you know, what, what is, who is this man, Don Quixote? Don Quixote is a nobleman of middling status, I believe, um, who goes mad after reading too many books of chivalry, stories about knights, and ends up believing that he too is a knight um, and attributing to himself qualities that he does not exactly have as well as to his horse, Rocinante, and to the object of his affections. What's her name again? Dulcinea. Dulcinea. Okay, okay. And uh, yeah, he sets off on a journey accompanied by his um, loyal uh, servant, son, page, yeah, oh. friend, Sancho Panza. <laughs> so, um, and hijinks ensue. That's my nutshell summary, if people want to add to that. I think a very interesting thing about this book is that it's technically the first novel in the Litham syllabus. So it's an introduction to a whole new literary form, which I'm very fascinated by this literary form. You know, people are still trying to define what exactly a novel is to this day. But this in particular is what we would call a picaresque novel. It follows a man and his many adventures. Um... And, you know, Cervantes, there are, he tells many stories, many adventures happen to Don Quixote and the characters in the novel. Um, and then the, the characters in the novel, in turn, tell stories and are affected by stories. So the book in itself is really a book about stories. It's about how we interact with stories, what stories can do to people. Um, and I think that this is very, I mean, I think that the Bible is very similar. There are many stories in the Bible um, it's very important to think about how stories from the Bible can impact us. So I guess the first question that we might start off with is, I guess, to what end do people in 
Don Quixote tells stories, and what effects do these stories have on the characters in the book? I think the first most important one is Don Quixote's own interaction with stories, and particularly uh, chivalrous novels, and how that itself becomes something that almost bewitches him. He, you know, models of imitation are set up, and he begins to, uh, to, to, you know, follow in the footsteps of the characters that he reads. And so, stories aren't shown to be something that's static or something that's separate from the reader, but something that has a direct impact on the reader's lives. I can't remember any. Uh, I can't remember other parts in the novel where stories are told, uh, but I think that's the one that always I remember when I think of Don Quixote. Yeah, I remember um, way back when in my lit hum class, like a big question for us was, is Don Quixote as a as a book anti-book? Like, is this book saying don't read any more books because what you'll end up doing is like going mad and imagining that you're living your life as if it were that book. Um, and I thought that, w- that was an interesting question. Um, I obviously don't think that's what Don Quixote is saying, but I think it is saying something about how we do interact with books. And I think that's, that's what you're saying, Chase. I mean, it definitely says something about the way um, or what, what can happen when we make fiction or when we believe fiction too much or we make fiction a reality. I think you can see that in, um, I guess, yeah, as a reader, when you're reading Don Quixote, there's almost, at least from my perspective, there's kind of not quite a judgment, but a little bit of a judgment of like, wow, like this is a little insane to believe those fantastical things so much that they, that you believe that you are in one or that it is real. But I think as humans, we, we kind of do that in maybe less extreme versions um, where, I mean, maybe for some people it is quite as extreme, but I think for a lot of us, it's a little less extreme with um, taking kind of what we believe like daydreaming, for example, I think daydreaming is an example um, that we could use and it being a problem when that daydreaming or that believing that, or like imagining yourself in a fictional world when that impacts your ability to actually interact with others in the real world and not escape, if you will, to a fantastical world. Yeah, and another point I think is that I mean, the question of reading has come up before, um, reading specifically, so written text and uh, books. And it's curious, the book as a book is kind of, at least in the West, a product of the Christian world um, as a codex, as something that resembles what we think of today as a book and not just like a scroll or a roll of parchment, something that can be read that way chronologically. Um, We see it in um, the Confessions, uh, Augustine, pick up and read. It's a book that, um, you know, convicts him, affects his conversion. Uh, I don't know if we talked about this in the second circle of the Inferno. um, Dante speaks to two lovers who fell in love when they were reading together from a book, the story of Lancelot and Guinevere. So there has been a theme that will continue um, of books as potentially... Um, inspiring, potential for good or for harm. And uh, Gabrielle, I think it's interesting that you bring up the idea of the novel as new because it's also a book, but yeah, the novelty of the novel, so to speak, is it moves away from, there's a lot of focus on the source now. There's a lot more focus on the author and the author's originality rather than a retelling of an older story um, or 
a performance, so to speak, of a story that already existed. And so I think one difference that we are seeing in Don Quixote, not only in the narrative style, where Cervantes is very conscious of himself as a narrator, invents sources for himself as a narrator, and within the story, we're constantly presented with the question, when these characters are telling stories, do we trust the narrator of the story? Do we trust Don Quixote when he narrates his dreams and when he narrates what he sees? Or do we instead trust Sancho Panza, who's not the best storyteller, but seems to be more in touch with reality or is he or the reality that Cervantes presents so um, I think there's a lot of the reasons one of the reasons well I don't know if this is even a reason stories are told but when they are told anyway it says something about the narrator which is um, yeah and I think that one of the clearest examples within the book is the fact that I mean many people nowadays one of the central questions when you read Don Quixote is is he actually insane like, has he actually gone mad, or is this all just kind of a play that he's putting on? Because there are many quotes from the book, such as, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, but there is one point at which Sancho Panza is looking, and he's like, those are windmills, they're not monsters. And Don Quixote says, well, you know, you have to have an active imagination. So he's very clearly, I mean, from what Don Quixote says, you would think he's aware of the fact that what he's saying is not real, but he's going along with it anyway, right? But the narrator, as Ardashir pointed out, constantly, he constantly says, oh, Don Quixote has gone mad. This man is insane. And not just the narrator, but the characters around Don Quixote, they're all completely convinced that this man has gone completely insane. And then I, I think that Ardashir kind of hinted at this before as well, or I actually, I think it was Grace Alita. But all the people around Don Quixote are saying that he's completely insane, and yet they're also very emotionally invested in these chivalric romances as well. Like, there are, th there are, I think it's three whole chapters dedicated, chapters 33 to 35, to the retelling of, I, I'm not sure if it's a real chivalric romance, but there are three chapters devoted to one character retelling a chivalric romance. Um, so it's like a novel within a novel almost. Um, and then all the, all the, all the rest of the characters who are listening to this guy recount this chivalric romance are just going completely insane over this. They're like, oh, this is so good. I wish I could do something like that. And then Don Quixote is clearly trying to do something like that and they're all making fun of him. Um, and then there are, I mean, there are many examples. I think Grace Alita was talking about how we let stories kind of take over us a little bit in our own lives. I mean, there's the example of the goat herd Pedro in chapter 12 telling Don Quixote and Sancho Panza about a true, air quotes, true story of these two people who were madly in love, Grisostomo and Marcella, and, you know, the tragedy of their tale, which would very much resemble or chivalric romance. So there's always a huge play on um, how much really can we distinguish between this fabricated reality that Don Quixote has made up and the actual reality of Don Quixote's world. Yeah, and I think Sancho Panza is interesting in this respect because um, he seems to be in touch with reality, but he also seems to buy in a little bit to Don Quixote's um, fantasy, if we want to use those terms for it, um, to the point... It's a running joke that he really wants his insula, his island that Don Quixote has promised him. And, um, you know, does he actually believe he's going to get it? Because he seems to be in it for what he's going to get. Or does he just not, is he just bored and wants to play along with this? So. 
I'm really interested in the role of imitation in Don Quixote. I believe Rene Girard talks about Don Quixote or uses Don Quixote as an example when he talks about his mimetic desire, where basically you uh, not only when you have an object of desire, uh, particularly another like human character, you begin to desire the things that they desire. And we can kind of see that with Don Quixote he begins to imitate not only the, the, the knights within the novels that he reads, but also the desire of the knights being the uh, beloved. And so I, I'm, I'm pretty interested. And I think that is a way to kind of explore the relationship between the reader and the text in which they are reading and how um, the characters that are elevated as models to imitate can actually affect the person who's reading it. In my own life, that has been a very um, important part of my just discipleship to Christ um, before then. like I would say probably the darkest moments in my life were coupled with trying to imitate characters of just depravity and uh, coming to Christ, like having a, a perfect model to imitate. And you have a, a blog article. About I that. do. If you would like to read more about this, I won't go into all of it, but if you'd like to read more, you can go to the witness, uh, columbiawitness.org and look at my article, copycatness, imitative desire, deceiving TVs in Christlikeness. But anyways, I think that's something that's um, worthy to note when exploring the relationship between the reader and the text. Um, and I don't know if anybody has any thoughts about that, but I think even what Grace Lita was saying about daydreaming, um, especially one of my friends pointed this out to me, just he's been reading uh, some, uh, I forget exactly which, but some, I believe the Egyptian monks or something like that. I don't know, some some church fathers, but he was talking about how uh, what he was reading was saying that you don't even want to form images in your mind of who you can become in a, in a way that's where you're writing your own story rather than God writing the story for you. And so I think that plays into kind of how we can compose our own stories that may not be directly from literature or TV, but influenced by those type of ideals, these pictures of the good life that books or movies may be pointing to, but uh, how that can itself place us in a position of uh, being led astray from the good life. Yeah, there's a proverb. That it's uh, the heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord orders his steps. And I think that that's like basically what you're saying right there, Chase. And to Chase's point about, well, I guess not even, so imitative desire, but not even those who imitate it, those who are touched by it, those who might reject it, but, you know, are touched by the storyteller, in this case, Don Quixote, what happens to them? Are they, I mean, in Sancho Panza's case, sometimes they get beaten up and uh, they, um, but, but in other cases, you have to ask, what are the, effects what are the fruits so to speak of don quixote's vision um again there's some pretty gory passages where he gets his teeth knocked out because he gets in fights but at other times when he interacts with people um not just in violent ways but also in the first uh, i believe early on um he comes to an inn where he interacts with um a few people there there's some women there who Cervantes tells us our prostitutes are not women who would be a particularly high social standing but don quixote treats them as you know, um, noble ladies and so on. So you have to ask, is there, what is the effect of Don Quixote's story on people? Does it ennoble them? Does it lead them into, um, does it make them like him in a way, you know, um, full of dreams of nobility and likely to get into trouble? What, what does it look like? But I think that's a good point Chase raised about the fact that stories don't happen in a vacuum and that they will always affect those around us. It's so, it's really tragic that we don't read the second book of of Don Quixote because in it 
there's a part where there's like some nobles who discover Don Quixote, this madman who believes in all these chivalric romances, and they literally they try to create his world. Like they 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 try to you know they use props and they use different things to try to make him you know to actually put his vision into reality and to to, to be entertained by him just looking at the looking at the world come into being as he is trying to fabricate it and um, that has some pretty that has some pretty funny outcomes I mean they seem pretty they seem pretty entertained by it they seem pretty happy by it. Um, and this was kind of going back a little bit to what I was saying before is that even though the characters immediately, their, their immediate reactions to Don Quixote's whole vision of reality is, oh, this man is insane and they're very entertained by it. But then in turn, they start talking about, oh, I love this chivalric romance. I wish my life would be that way. Um, so in a way, I think that there is almost something lovable about Don Quixote and even if they make fun of him, there is almost this... They they definitely entertain it, right? They don't just shoo him away. They definitely kind of... Some characters even go along with it, right? I would like to um, retrace back to some things that Chase was saying before um, about... I mean, he he was talking a lot about seeing one's life as is planned out by God and not merely trying to imitate... Um, you know things from the media, or you know, and one other question that I that I think would be interesting to look at is, um, you know, is is I mean, we're looking at storytelling within Don Quixote, but as Christians, one very big question that we can ask, or one thing that I think is a very interesting idea, is God as a storyteller. Um, is God ultimately the greatest storyteller, and if so, what does that tell us about our calling as Christians? I think there is grounds for saying God is um, a storyteller. I mean, uh, in a previous episode, Montaigne, I think, we talked a lot about um, the role of words and their relation to the self and God as speaking, speaking the world into creation and also the um, the, uh, the word of God incarnate as Christ. Um, and I think, yeah, in terms of telling a story, narrating i mean the bible is full of stories itself um and christians would argue that it tells a unified story that points to christ where god himself is the um main actor it's in a way it's you can come at it in a lot of different ways um and as an adventure almost as a romance between god and his people um which is a theme that comes up throughout um, the old testament and then in the new testament speaking of christ and his bride um yeah, and just theologically, I found the analogy of God as author um, and the creation as his story to be one of the most helpful in picturing God as utterly other than his creation and not merely as floating out there somewhere in space, but also in creation. Um, and I know uh, there have been writers who have um, you know, gone extremely in-depth into this theme I'm currently reading Dorothy Sayers' book, The Mind of the Maker, which uh, talks about the doctrine of the Trinity um, and makes an analogy to the creative act of an author telling a story. So I think this theme of God as storyteller is something that's very powerful. Yeah, I mean, we just, in church today, we, we sang a hymn, 
a hymn by um, Gettys. It's Christ the True and Better. And that's kind of like the modeling of the hymn is it, it goes through these Old Testament uh, characters and parallels their stories to Christ. And then the chorus is from beginning to end, Christ the story, his the glory. Um, and so I think I think that's kind of like when we talk about God as maybe the best storyteller, um, thinking about one of the ways that his story is so grand is that it has this um, layering to it um, that I think is very beautiful, that in, in all of these different stories, you can see how they do point to Christ. Um, and yeah, I think that's just mind-boggling every time I think about it. Yeah, so I guess when we're using the term story, we're referring to like human history. Like human history create, initiated and directed by God is the story that he has created and is also telling. Um, and just, I, just, just so you know, I looked up the etymology, history and story. Mm -hmm. It's literally the same root. All that happens is that story gets like condensed in, in like French or something. I noticed that. Yeah. In some, in some romance languages, it's the same. They have the same word for both. So it's very, I actually noticed mm, that's that. That's kind of confusing. Yeah, it is. It is, but it's. I think it's. I mean, that's that's also probably with the rise of the novel, where stories being conflated with fiction. When that's oh, that's not true. The case, although I don't want to say that. That yeah, I don't know too much about the form of the novel or anything like that. Well, I have heard an argument too that the first historians, um, whom we consider historians, like uh, Xenophon and Thucydides, I think uh, those guys. Well, in the ancient world, anyway, um, history was considered a form of literature. Um, and make of that what you will, but um, you know this this idea of history itself as needing to draw on sources and things that like what Cervantes is doing with the novel is not quite something that I mean there are still sources uh, in ancient histories, but they will also um, you know they put them together artfully with a, a literary sensibility, um, and I think we still do that. But yeah, yeah, I agree. I think Hannah Arendt in the Human Condition refers to the historian as a storyteller, if I'm not mistaken. But I think, how do we relate? But my, my, the question that I have, though, is like, how do we relate um, the story of the Bible, which is Ardisher says, like, Christians will say that, that the Bible should be read, both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament scriptures, as a complete narrative, a narrative of uh, beginning to end uh, promise and fulfillment. And so how do we relate the story of the scriptures to human history if that makes sense um i think well for one thing how do we relate yeah um I, if if i'm understanding you correct uh, if i'm not extrapolating too far from your question it's basically how do we relate human stories to god's story um the story god tells um in scripture i guess and um right and human history as in the histories we sometimes tell i guess um and I think that's interesting first to think of humans as storytellers in the image of um, God as storyteller. I know Tolkien talks about human beings as engaging in the creative act as sub-creators, so to speak. It's it's imitating God's work in creation. So I think that's just a point worth elaborating on. Um, as to how we relate human history 
to the divine story. I think, yeah, I think humans, and there's an interesting tension here. I would say God's story is inherent not only in um, the realm of human history, as, as recorded in the Bible. I think a lot of the church fathers saw it in nature even, um, saw the cross in nature for, for, foretold and fulfilled. Um, so I would say there is a sense in which the divine story of redemption will come through basically all stories, um, even despite ourselves. As Christians, I think we might make the argument that it inheres in all stories. It is what resonates most deeply with the human heart. So that even if we tell a story without consciously um, including that there, some of those patterns will shine through. Nevertheless, I think as Christians, we can think of the stories we tell or the stories rather that we choose to believe about history, about other things, and consciously compare them to the story narrated in scripture of Christ and correct them or compare them and just grow. Yeah, correcting it sounds too artificial, but it's more of an organic thing where we grow into the divine story or when we realize we're even participating in that story, then the stories we tell will in a way align with it or have even more power because of our participation in it. Um, this is, if, if anyone has been around me in any way uh, within the past few months. Uh, they will have heard me drop the name Mircheliade because this is an author that I had to read for a class and he's Romanian. So, you know, now it's my duty to <laughs> to, to highlight the, the, the only Romanian author that Colombia has ever put on a syllabus <laughs> for a class. But... Um, in Mircheliades, um, the myth of the eternal recur uh, return, which is very different from Nietzsche's conception of it, he talks a lot about how a lot of ancient civilizations or, or kind of, he you know, air quotes primitive societies would, um, would view their actions that they take as a nation or even as individuals as meaningful only insofar as they imitate a myth. Um, that's why a lot of societies, when they would, you know, go and take over another, another society, they would perform certain rituals. They would put certain things in place when they come to take over it in imitation of a creation myth. Um, and so I think that in a way, this is just exactly s similar to what Ardashir was saying. Um, you could take this lens of human history as having meaning insofar as it imitates the story that the stories that that scripture have put forth um, or that it aligns somewhat with the philosophy that is taught of the fall of man and then the redemption that comes with Jesus Christ. Or I think personally that Cervantes takes a very different approach. I think the whole point of Don Quixote is that maybe the meaning doesn't come from an imitation of another story. Maybe it, the meaning comes from just, I mean, it just comes by virtue of the fact that it exists. I, I, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'm, some people even debate as to whether there is any meaning to a lot of what goes on in Don Quixote. Because, I mean, so many of the stories that take place really seem like they're just kind of put in there for entertainment. They're just kind of put in there for the laughs. You could try to analyze it in relation to other parts of the entire book, but at the end of the day, there are some things that happen that 
some scholars today still don't really know how to tie to the rest of the book. Whereas if you look in scripture, you can very clearly see that every part of scripture seems to be relating to something else, which Tim was um, talking about the many layer, the many layers that come to not just the story that was literally written in scripture by God, but the story that is unfolding in human history. Right. I think that's actually really interesting. That point about, um, earlier societies, yeah. Imitating myth and viewing their actions as having, um, value in the imitation of that myth. In a way, I think that's what more liturgical traditions of Christianity do try to do in their liturgy. They're reenacting um, what Tolkien calls the true myth, the, the um, appearance of Christ his, uh, and his sacrifice and resurrection. Um, and I think we can think of communion as like the perfect example of that, right? It's that reminder of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And in partaking in communion, you are reminded of um, Christ's body and blood right so there's that that's that like that kind of built-in tradition right right and um i think there's great value in that but as gabriel was saying with cervantes he's not a if we want to put it that way he's not a liturgical author he's not just imitating something there's this new idea of creation and i think this does signal an important break Um, we've talked about the break between older forms of storytelling and the novel and I think we saw this in Montaigne when we were talking about Montaigne as now writing a self-expression, um, as expression of the self. Is there value to that? Um, is there value to no longer receiving myths from above, receiving stories from above, from authority, and just participating in them in an almost cyclical manner? Is there value now in individuals, increasingly more and more individuals, trying to tell new stories, telling stories of themselves? That is, I think, one of the conundrums of modernity. Do we just throw up our hands and say, you know, there's too many stories now. We need to return to a more orderly society where we just imitate one story. Or is there, can we navigate this world of many stories um, graciously also? Uh, how, how do we hold on to, as Christians, the value of the central story? Um, whereas also um, living in a world where we tell our own stories. Um, you know, Tocqueville has a, an interesting chapter that kind of t- speaks to that in uh, Democracy on, in America, which is interesting. Like, who would think you'd have a chapter <laughs> in a book called Democracy in America about stuff like that? But um, I would recommend it. It's a, There's actually a couple chapters that kind of talk about that. But I think, I mean, just talking about this, the cyclicalness, though, um, I, I, it's interesting, like, as Christians, would we ever write something and, um, like, this is particularly particularly important to you, um, Gabrielle and Ardashir. Like, would you ever write something that didn't somehow include the like grand arc of history, if we want to call it that, or like the true myth, as you said, Ardashir of Christ? Uh, no, I'm. I actually want to backtrack. I, I mean, I actually want to not backtrack. I don't know if that's the correct word, but I want to kind of. Uh, criticize what I said before because I think within Don Quixote you could argue that you do see this arc of history because you have Don Quixote taking on this sort of I'm a knight errant now and I've you know I'm I'm going to go and right wrongs and and then at the end when he literally at the end of the book which we don't have to read for lit hum because I don't know who wrote this syllabus but at the end 
at the end when he's about to die he's like i take back everything and i've you know i admit this was all folly uh, i mean you could almost take that as a sort of redemption that's it's it's anticlimactic but it's still a sort of quote-unquote redemption and I do think that Don Quixote, I mean, I do think that Cervantes is kind of playing with a lot of the ideas that Ardashir and Tim have brought up. And I don't think that he gives any one answer, which seems to be very, uh, very signature for the novel, is the whole idea of you're not giving an answer, you're just kind of playing with a ton of different questions. And to tie this in with the whole cyclical thing is... I guess if you're leaving it so open, right, it, it's bound to be incomplete. If the novel is based, if the whole idea of the novel is that it's not supposed to give answers, it's only supposed to raise questions that at the end are not even finalized, how can you have a cycle built on something that's incomplete? Yeah, and to Tim's question about do we actively try and include um, the divine story and the story we stories we tell um like gabriel said cervantes i don't think you would in any way call his um novel a didactic novel um but it it does include these elements of redemption in it and in the same way um i don't think we'll tell good stories if we start out with the didactic intent um i think i think the story of the bible is probably told best by the bible and if we try and I think a lot of Christian fiction has fallen into the trap of just trying to take that and just get, slap on different names for the characters. But, you know, in a way that doesn't often work. Uh, I think that... Redeeming if we, love, cough, cough. Redeeming love. If, if, we start with the, if we start with the moral in mind rather than the story, the beauty of the story, whatever it is, then um, I believe very much in storytelling as something that in a way comes from an inspiration, whatever you want to call that, you know, if it comes from your subconscious or whatever but yeah i think there's a great value to the idea of writing as an expression of self-expression as even an expression of your own desires and hates because i think that's the way you're going to tell stories that are compelling because they're convincing that way and if you want to have stories that this this provides a this goes back to the question of the author that we were talking about earlier because this is a compelling view of stories i believe but in a way, it means that if we want to have cross-centered or cross-shaped stories, you now have to have a cross-shaped self. You need to be correcting yourself by the divine story so that the stories you tell, even though they're not trying to just imitate the um, divine story, they can at least be aligned with it. That's very interesting. With all that in line, I guess an interesting question might be, I mean... A lot of what you said of the ideal storyteller, which is actually a lot of what Walter Benjamin talks about in his article on the storyteller, um, a lot of it depends on a person's ability to listen and have a momentary um, suspension of disbelief, right? And to have faith in the storyteller, uh, but yet also the ability to kind of question the story, bring the story into question. So... I guess if I'm understanding you correctly, Ardashir, what makes a great story is one that is not so hard-pressed on imitating the specifics of another story, or uh, even on the moral necessarily, but is still aware of the fact that since stories are a part of human society, 
they will inevitably and they should inevitably relate in some way to other stories within a certain tradition in order to have meaning, um, which is similar to the idea of a human act having meaning insofar as it has somewhat of a relation to a myth um, or to or it relates itself to God's scripture. If this is all true, we see that in Don Quixote, these people are horrible storytellers. <laughs> like, the characters are horrible. They're doing the exact opposite of what you just said. They're mimicking all the exact actions and all the exact characteristics of a brave knight, but they're not really doing anything to add to this tradition, right? And so, I guess, is is Cervantes through Don Quixote almost like um, predicting the death of the storyteller? Or the decline, the, the declining of the importance of the story in our modern world. I think that's interesting. I would see it more as just okay. Um, I would see it as maybe not the death of the storyteller in general, but just inveighing against bad stories, against the empty imitation that he saw in um, in the uh, chivalric romances. Uh, and if since we connected stories to liturgy already, let's just connect this to um, roughly same time period Protestant Reformation type things, where where you do see a kind of inveighing against just liturgy itself taking on too much weight without the actual involvement of the self, this new concept of the self, if you want to call it that. But the self now needs to be involved, so it's no longer a living liturgy, and so we need to have, uh, and so. Cervantes invades against this dead liturgy of dead stories and um you know and we have living very living characters like Don Quixote who do their best within that liturgy that doesn't suit them and in the end as you said he resubmits to what Cervantes would have seen as the true liturgy and the most living story in in a living way you know even though he's just about to die um and I think I think that's interesting if we think of stories as as projections of the self, then they ought to participate in the grand liturgy of story in the same way as human beings would participate in the liturgy of worship. Um, this is all, this might sound very mystical and everything. <laughs> it's okay. M mysticism always happens when you tie in a Romanian author. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but just to point back to the relationship between the scriptures and history, um, I, I mean, it's kind of a, you know, a tricky question because I don't think that there is a distinction, if you will, uh, as artistry, you're saying, like there's a need to almost, there's an act of participation within the story. And I think that uh, the Bible is, um, it is a claim to an interpretation of the human story. And so to, um, to trust in like the scriptures is to, is to actually be able to see what the story of humanity is, a story of God creating human beings and a story of human beings rebelling against this God and a story of this God graciously um, coming down through his son um, to redeem these rebels. And so there's even now, like what is, what is, how does that relate to our modern age of all these stories uh, bombarding us? Which ones do we choose? Well, to, to trust in the scriptures is to trust in, in that there is uh, a almost you can identify yourself within this story. You're either a rebel and you're, or you're either a child of God through faith in Christ. And so I think right. that's, yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, interesting. Because uh, faced with this bombardment of stories, as we see even in the novel, Don Quixote, 
I mean, we could go completely postmodern and say, all right, fine, there's too many stories around. The, well, the only thing that matters is the story most people agree on. And if I disagree with that story, then like Don Quixote, I'm insane. Or we could say that there is a story that's properly told, like Chase was saying, and we can correct our notions of story by that, by that story and be shaped or have ourselves shaped by it so that we can tell compelling stories to those who um, disagree with it. That in a way, the genius of scripture is that it tells a story in which we participate. Uh, I think the um, parable of the sower is a really, um, there's a little subtle genius to it as well, because in the telling of that story, you are inevitably pulled in and become a participant in that story. Um, when Christ says, everyone who hears these words basically is one of these four types of ground who receives the word. Um, you know, you have to be one of them. You can't escape being a participant in um, the story Christ tells. And I think there's something um, very, um, you know, immersive about that. That's so, I, that's actually very interesting if you, if you were to try to tie it into um, Cervantes's Don Quixote, because the whole reason why he wrote the second book, which we don't read and i'm going to say for the thousandth time that it's absolutely ridiculous that we don't um the whole reason why he goes and he writes another book is because someone else tried to write another book to complete don quixote and cervantes was like this is not cool <laughs> he's going and trying to write the second or actually maybe he thought it was very cool you know actually i think uh cervantes would have probably thought it was very cool that there was another don quixote written by someone else entirely out there but um in a way, I do think that that's just inevitably a part of receiving stories as humans. We inevitably get pulled into it. It could be the most boring story ever. I could tell you about I don't know how I walked to a I, how I walked to a well for three hours to get a bucket of water, and you will still be pulled into it because it's a story about a human being, and there will inevitably be a way for you to relate to it. Yeah. Um, to the question of, uh, yeah, the author again, uh, telling of stories. I think it's interesting that even within scripture, we have this question of competing accounts. Um, we can not, not in opposition to each other necessarily, but we have the books of Kings and then we have the books of Chronicles, which retell um, the story of Israel's Royal dynasties in, slightly different ways, emphasizing different aspects. We have four Gospels, um, and some of those Gospels include stories of that the others don't. The Gospel of John includes a story about a woman who walks to a well. I don't know if it took her three hours. But, <laughs> but um, I believe four. Four, and met Christ there, um, which the other Gospels do not. And, yeah, we can say that those um, differences are not contradictory and can be reconciled, but we also... I think it is interesting that within scripture there are um, stories are retold. Um, stories are told in slightly different ways with different emphases. I think it speaks to, in a way, the humanity of scripture. Um, the fact that you had different storytellers um, with God telling the story through them. But um, yeah, I think that's an interesting thought. And the, and the fact that one definition I've heard of myth is basically that it's a story that can be told it, it exists independent of the way in which it is told. And um, once again, going to that definition of Christ as the true myth, the myth that becomes history, I think it's interesting that it's told in four different ways, and yet there's a picture of Christ that comes through. That's interesting. That I, th I believe that the Greek word that myth comes from is muthos, yeah, which is also word, just yeah, word. And so word. Christ being the true myth, <laughs> the true word.
Hashtag John one one. <laughs> I yeah, and I I mean through this discussion, I just keep seeing how different, um, you know, the Bible is from Don Quixote because Don Quixote also has many. He I mean Cervantes claims to get his sources on the life of Don Quixote from many different authors. And he says, you know, my main, the main goal of this book is to tell a true history. And this is going to be the true history of this man. But, I mean, the, the, the book contradicts itself many, many times. I mean, even just between the first book and the second book, which we sadly don't read, um, <laughs> even between those two, if you look at the character of Sancho Panza, he's, he's very different in the second book compared to the first I mean, not to the degree where you would think that he's a completely different person, but the character is considerably different in the second book from the first one. And many people, many scholars believe that Cervantes intentionally meant to do this to kind of highlight this idea of the questionability of many different stories that, I mean, of of receiving stories from many different people. Okay. I guess that's a good way to wrap up. Um, I'd, oh, don't we have to do something about social media? Does anyone else remember? Pop quiz. Where do you find us on Instagram and Facebook? The internet. <laughs> wow. What do you search on the internet? At? The Good Fight Pod? Yes. And where do you find our email? Well, not where do you, but where do you send our email to? Good Fight. No. No. <laughs> Try again. Witness the good fight pod. No. Oh, you were oh so my close. word. Artish here. Oh. Witness the good fight at gmail. Woo. Oh, wow. so proud of you, Artish here. Hey, we he all got are. it on like the like the third try. Okay. It, 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 there weren't the right many options waiting. afterwards. No. Well, well, thank you for tuning in. Um, to our competing narratives of what the social media <laughs> yeah. we've gotten um, you know our sources for, uh, our sources are, are countless you know uh, some of them are comp- okay <laughs> and we'll be back next week bye bye, bye. bye. thank you bye bye mm-hmm.